Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Tom Shannon, one of the most distinguished diplomats in U.S. history. Ambassador Shannon served six U.S. presidents and 11 secretaries of state during his 35-year Foreign Service career, including assignments as U.S. Ambassador to Brazil, Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and as the Department's Counselor, the first Foreign Service officer to hold that position in over 32 years. Ambassador Shannon holds the rank of Career Ambassador, the highest rank in the United States Foreign Service. Ambassador Shannon, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's a real pleasure and an honor. Sir, thank you again for taking the time to join us. You were well known as a Latin Americanist, but also a strategic thinker. Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson compared you to a walking encyclopedia. I've heard the same thing said about Ambassador Bill Burns, who also received a PhD from Oxford at around the same time you did. Mm -hmm. Yes. You and Ambassador Burns are considered among the most accomplished, effective diplomats of your generation. As the world gets more fragmented and more complex, it seems like the need for strategic thinking is more important than ever. Do you think your run-of-the-mill generalist or even political appointee has a deep enough understanding of political theory and history to be effective? That's a great question. And first of all, thank you for even mentioning me in the same sentence with Bill Burns. Bill is a dear friend and an important mentor, but also just an extraordinary individual and a great American diplomat. And I'm not sure I come anywhere close to him, but I'll take it nonetheless. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And in terms of strategic thinking, it's not something that comes naturally to people, especially when you're busy going about the daily tasks of whatever it is you're doing. Because our lives, to use a military term, are very tactical. They're all about getting from one point to another or accomplishing something that you've been assigned to accomplish. And finding ways to connect all of these different pieces, all these different devices and tactics for getting things done and putting them in a larger conceptual context that will allow you to see the whole trajectory of what it is an entity or an organization or a country is trying to accomplish is not easy. And I don't think it's necessarily something you're born with. And my own experience is that history is an important instiller of strategic understanding because it allows you to see the kinds of problems that other leaders and diplomats have had to deal with. And by understanding that while history might not repeat itself, that it certainly rhymes, that you can understand similarities between different times and similarities between different situations. So number one, I think that studying the world, understanding its complexity and understanding the complexity of human history, but especially the history that brought us to the point where we find ourselves at any particular moment is important. As for most of our officials, whether they be career officials or appointees, have this understanding. Some do and some don't. Some learn it and some can't. But what I've found, at least as a foreign service officer and someone who is working with any number of principals, some of them career officials and some of them political appointees, is that the crush of business is so dramatic and so overwhelming that they will naturally turn to and embrace anybody who can offer them a conceptual understanding of a problem. 
And anybody who can tell them how the tactical steps towards a solution fit into a larger strategy. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think that it's really incumbent upon younger officers to take the time to try to understand how to build a larger strategic vision and how to ensure that whatever they're doing at the moment can be explained in terms of that larger strategy. So looking at your own career and maybe the future in that context, I heard a speech in which you said junior and mid-level officers are going to see changes, orders of magnitude larger than what you and your peers saw over the course of your own career. Yes. You spent decades combating Soviet and Cuban influence in Central and South America. You witnessed the fall of communism, the rise of India, the rise of China. What sort of challenges do you think our mid- and junior-level diplomats are going to face over the next 20 to 30 to 40 years as they assume executive leadership positions within the department? That's a great question. I lived through a world transformed. It's the title of a book that President George H.W. Bush and his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, wrote together. But my colleagues, the ones I left behind in the Department of State, the senior officers, the mid-level officers, but especially the younger officers, are going to see much more than a world transformed because change now has velocity. It accelerates over time for all the reasons we're familiar with. Most of it has to do with technology and the way in which globalization has driven aspects of change in the world. As I look out on the issues that are now dealt with typically in diplomacy and in national security arrangements between countries, when I came into the Foreign Service, it was a fairly limited group of issues, mostly related to intelligence, law enforcement, and security, meaning military security and political security, with some commercial work built in. But that has expanded dramatically. I think that what we're going to find as we get deeper into the 21st century is that almost every aspect of human life is going to be dealt with, not only in the relationships between states and governments, but also in the way in which societies and peoples interact with each other. And that diplomats are going to find themselves at the intersection of all these relationships. And they're going to have to have an ability to understand the social, the economic, and the political forces that are at work, not only in individual countries, but in regions and then globally. And some of this is going to be how governments and states relate to each other. But a lot of this is going to be about how economies function, how global supply chains work, how regional supply chains work, and then how people are attempting to use all aspects of a society to enhance their lives. And this is where science is going to play an important role. Sociology is going to play an important role. And so I just think that the intellectual table that is being set for diplomacy is going to be immense. And it's going to be loaded with issues that I probably can't even think of right now, but which are going to become important over time. And the pandemic is a perfect example of this. First of all, we've known that something like this was going to be coming at us. And we've seen bits and pieces of it over the past two decades with H1N1, with MERS, with SARS, and other forms of disease. But we've never seen anything move the way the coronavirus moved. And what we're understanding about global supply chains for pharmaceutical goods, for medical devices, for personal protective equipment is all something that's a bit of a revelation for us now, but we now realize this is an incredibly important part of our national security and how we get things done. So 
This is a long way of saying that the officers in the service today, those who are going to be doing the analysis, helping elected leaders understand the world and implementing U.S. policy, are going to be called on to have a very broad sweep of knowledge and to understand a range and a quantity or a level of issues that officers of my generation probably can't even imagine. When you entered the department in 1984, you're assigned to Guatemala City. Then you come back to Washington to work as a desk officer covering, I think, Cameroon, Gabon, and Sao Tome. Yes. Your third tour is in Brasilia, your fourth in Johannesburg, and your fifth in Caracas. Yes. So that's W-H-A-A-F, W-H-A-A-F, W-H-A, which is sort of a major in W-H-A and a minor in A-F. And then in 1999, you go to work at the NSC, the National Security Council, as the director of Inter-American Affairs. And that tour seemed to be a sort of turning point in your career. When you look back, what were your main takeaways from that White House tour and your later tour as a senior director at the White House? In other words, what did you learn while you were at the NSC that you hadn't learned while at state? And what do you think is so valuable about NSC service for our diplomats? Yeah. Well, I was very lucky to be able to serve at the White House twice. Some people would say this is evidence of a learning disability because, (laughs) well, White House service is tough and National Security Council service is tough because there just aren't that many people there. The demands are intense and there's no place to hide. So you perform and you perform in front of the President of the United States, in front of his cabinet and in front of the National Security Advisor and the Deputy National Security Advisor and as a director in front of senior directors. And it's a remarkable environment, and I loved it, but it requires a lot of people, and which is one of the reasons why typically people who go to the National Security Council don't stay that long. It's one or two years, occasionally three. But beyond that, you're risking health and well-being just because it is so demanding. But what I learned in both instances is the depth and the breadth of the interagency and also the centrality of the presidency to American foreign policy. And that really ever since the National Security Act of, I believe, 1947, when the National Security Council was created and the interagency became something, an entity that the White House could manage as opposed to just its relationships with individual agencies, it brought a degree of coherence to what we were trying to accomplish and a richness to what the U.S. government could offer, the national security agencies could offer the president which I think has benefited the United States tremendously. And I learned as a director during my first time at the White House, which was 1999 to 2000 at the end of the Clinton administration, I learned the whole lay of the land, so to speak, when it came to operating on issues related to the Western Hemisphere, especially Latin America and the Caribbean, and every agency that had a role to play. I also learned how decisions were made and how decisions were influenced. And I returned from there to the department for several tours, but then came back as the senior director. And the reason I was hired back, I was hired back by Condi Rice and Steve Hadley. And I was not the department's first choice for any of these jobs, but Condi Rice and Steve Hadley had gone through a variety of candidates that the department had sent them and had not really liked what they saw. When I went over to talk with them, what clicked and what got them to make the decision almost immediately to hire me was the fact that I had been there before. And even though I had been there in the Clinton administration as opposed to the George W. Bush administration, 
They wanted somebody who understood the interagency. They wanted somebody who understood the dynamic between the State Department and the White House and somebody who could slot in and work immediately. And so in that sense, my second tour at the White House was really the product of my first tour. If we fast forward a few years to 2016, you're now the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, which is the third highest ranking position in the State Department. And in that job, you're required to play a truly global role. You're responsible for essentially everything. In 2016 alone, you're leading the U.S. response to the impeachments of the Brazilian and South Korean presidents, the fall of eastern Aleppo, a failed coup in Turkey, Duterte becoming president of the Philippines, failure of the TPP, and then, of course, accusations that Russia interfered with our own presidential elections. You mentioned at the top of our conversation that daily life in the department is dominated by tactical demands and that there's very little time to think strategically. As P, how did you determine where and how to focus, given the fast pace and unpredictable nature of everything that you're responsible for overseeing? Yeah, that's a very good question. And there's a couple of responses to it. First, the reality of the department is that the bureaus are the engine room of the department. And if you're Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the bureaus that report in this instance to me are the geographic bureaus plus the Bureau of International Organizations. And those are the ones that really get stuff done. And it's the assistant secretaries and their front offices that are not only the substantive experts, but are also the bureaucratic managers of our policy. And they are the ones that are interfacing with our missions abroad. And I had always seen the job of undersecretaries as twofold. First, adding value to what the bureaus were doing and making sure that the bureaus always had the backing of the seventh floor. And the second piece is that connectivity into the secretary's office to make sure that the assistant secretaries always understood the political dynamic that was at play on any particular issue, how the secretary was relating to other cabinet members and how the secretary was relating to the president on particular issues, but also that they understood where there were boundaries in terms of what they could do and what they couldn't do. And so what I'm trying to say here is at first, I relied heavily on the assistant secretaries, who were all superb. And even during a period of time in the beginning of the Trump administration, where we had very few Senate-confirmed assistant secretaries, in fact, for a period of time in the geographic bureaus, we had none, we did have superb front offices and a series of acting assistant secretaries who were really good at what they did. And these were the ones who would flag for me when an issue needed help. In a nutshell, that's how it worked. January 20th, 2017 was John Kerry's last day in office, and Rex Tillerson didn't start his tenure until February 1st, 2017. So throughout the intervening 12 days, you were the secretary. What was it like to be the secretary of state? It was great. <laughs> it was 12 days of riding around in armored vehicles with bodyguards and having somebody advance every event I did, and then being present for a tumultuous transition yeah. and understanding just how consequential this was going to be and then trying to see what we could do 
to trying to make this transition as smooth as possible and create an environment in the department that would allow the new secretary to come in and be successful. And what impressed me during that period of time was the professionalism and the calmness, the serenity of many of my colleagues around the building as they understood that they were going to be called on to do something very important, but at the same time, something very difficult and challenging. But the willingness to take on the challenge and take on the task, for me at least, was a source of real pride in my colleagues and convinced me that the Department of State, both the Foreign Service and the Civil Service, is made up of really remarkable individuals who are American in the biggest and the broadest sense of the word and who are committed to the well-being of the country. That's not something that's always acknowledged or recognized by many of our political leaders, but it's certainly true. And I think in many ways, that was my big takeaway as I relinquished the position of acting Secretary of State and handed that to Secretary Tillerson. I realized that I worked alongside a truly remarkable group of women and men, and I was very proud of it. That commitment to the well-being of the country is shared and promoted by all of us. Sure. But a lot of senior officials throughout the decades have been trusted and respected maybe more by one side of the aisle than the other. You were respected and well-liked by both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, as well as a number of previous administrations. You're an exceedingly modest guy, but you seem to be well-liked by pretty much everybody Do you have any thoughts or insights or guidance on why that's the case? Yeah, not everybody would view that as a positive. (laughs) 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 But but I have always taken seriously St. Paul's dictum that one should be all things to all people. Hmm. And the point is not that one should not have principles or purpose or your own point of view. You have to have your own point of view and your own principles. But we are servants of the American people. And therefore, we have to be ready to serve. And we have to be ready to serve those who the American people choose to be our elected leaders through our institutions and through our democratic processes, whether we like it or not. And as I was going around talking to people in the department before I left, on a couple of instances, I told them that it's not that hard to be a democratic diplomat and it's not that hard to be a Republican diplomat. But sometimes it's really challenging to be an American diplomat when you have to move between and across administrations and very different points of view politically. And if nothing else, what I have learned is that trust is a hugely important commodity in this business. And trust is, first of all, about showing that you're there to serve and that you're there to respond to the direction that leadership is laying out. But that for trust to be real, People have to understand how you think and why you think the way you do. And therefore, trust is not built by obeisance. It's not built by Uriah heapish action. It's built by clearly stating your point of view, your thoughts, and why you believe in something. But then acknowledging that independent of what you think, once our leadership takes decisions, that you are going to implement those decisions. Because for me, at least, what I have found in my relationship with principals, whether they be presidents, whether they be secretaries of state, whether they be ambassadors in the embassies I've served in or others, I have found that 
showing that I can get the job done is important, but being able to express myself and explain why I understand problems in a certain way and why I think things should be resolved in a certain way has also been an important part of this. So it's about respecting our constitutional role and responding to elected leadership, but it's also about recognizing that you can't sacrifice your individual integrity or your principles in the process of doing this and that you're going to be clear about your thinking. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or support that you'd like to deliver to folks out in the field? As I've said in the past, being an American diplomat is a high calling. I can't think of a higher one, especially at this particular moment in the world. And I guess I would leave you with this thought. When I came into the service in 1984, if there were watchwords for entering officers, it was duty and service. In the sense that the trajectory of American power was fixed. We were involved in a Cold War. We knew who the adversary was. And we knew what we had to do to beat them. So it was all about getting to work and doing that work faithfully. Duty and service is still important. But the world we live in today, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, has changed in such profound and fundamental ways that if there are watchwords for our younger officers today and our younger members of the civil service and our entering officers, the watchwords are really creativity and innovation and probably resilience. In other words, the ability to understand, to be able to respond to things that we've never really had to deal with before, and then to have the internal fortitude necessary to face some tough moments as we look for solutions to problems is really what's going to define success for our diplomats and our national security professionals as we look into the future. And in this regard, if I have any regrets as I look back on my career, it's really not in looking back where I see my regrets. My regret is that I'm out of the game and that I'm not going to be part of this really dramatic and important period of time that we're living through right now. So I guess I would finish by saying that I'm very envious of our younger officers, and I really wish them well. They are great Americans, and a lot is going to be asked of them. A lot of responsibility is going to be given to them. But I am very confident that they are going to respond in a way that is to the benefit of the United States of America and it will be a benefit to the American people. Ambassador Shannon, on behalf of all of our listeners, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. You can find more detail on Ambassador Shannon's post-State Department career at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School, where Ambassador Shannon is a lecturer and Charles and Marie Robertson visiting professor. You can find a list of Ambassador Shannon's publications and engagements at arnoldporter.com, where Ambassador Shannon works as a senior international policy advisor. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation and the American Academy of Diplomacy for supporting today's program. If you're interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov. To find out more about today's guest or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org, adst.org, or 25yearapprenticeship.com. Lastly, please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the Foreign Service can find us. Thanks very much. 